Would you please join me in a word of prayer? Lord, I stand before you and acknowledge that you are the king of the universe. And I pray for you to come and help me preach and help each one of us open our hearts to you. Teach us, Lord, about how awesome your forgiveness is for us. For I ask it in your holy name. Amen. You may be seated. As you know, we are in the course of Alpha. We're in week four of Alpha tonight. And last week, someone was asking a question about the prophecies that point to the cross. In Lent, it's a natural time to think about the cross of Christ. And I don't know if you're aware of this, but there are over 300 prophecies that are pointing to who Jesus would be, what his ministry would look like, and in particular, the cross. Consider this quote from um, a book called More Than a Carpenter that Josh McDowell wrote um, many years ago. It, he, in the book, he's got a whole list of what he calls uh, the address for the Messiah in history. Uh, everyone in history has an address. How would you find that person? And it starts working its way through the Old Testament prophecies and gets all the way down to Christ's actual ministry. Um, and he, one of the things he says is this, a prophecy dating from 1012 B.C., also predicts that this man's hands and feet will be pierced and that he will be crucified. You can find it in Psalm 22 and Zechariah 12. This description of the manner of his death was written 800 years before the Romans even used crucifixion as a method of execution. That's just one of the prophecies about who the Messiah would be and what his ministry would be like. Think about that. 1,200 years or 1,000 years before, um, he said he would be pierced for our transgressions. And, and then 800 years before the Romans even invented crucifixion, it describes how our, our Savior would die for us. All that to say, it is not an accident. The cross was the plan from the beginning. And this Lent, we're going to be considering the cross, but specifically, we're going to be considering the words from the cross that Jesus said. That's our new sermon um, title for the next six weeks, Words from the Cross. And it's very interesting to consider what someone says as their last words. It reveals a lot about the state of their heart, what matters to that person. In fact, there's a whole genre of I guess you could call it literature, although it's usually pithy little statements, but there are entire books. In fact, after the nine o'clock, someone loaned me a book on people's last words. But I did an internet search and found a whole bunch of these examples of people's last words. The saying is true that in general, men and women die as they live. In other words, the values and the direction of their life is confirmed by what happens in their moment of death. And so consider some of these examples. Um, some of them are better than others. I'll start with a good one, and I'm going to end with a really bad one. You, you've all heard of the football coach Vince Lombardi. He died of cancer in 1970. And as he died, Lombardi turned to his wife Marie and said, Happy anniversary. I love you. Last words he said on this earth. Very obviously, in his heart, was love for his wife. Um, another one the love of money, maybe, or injustice, a cry for justice here, uh, a man was executed named John Arthur Splanklick in Florida in 1979. And he spent his final days writing these last words on various pieces of mail. Quote, capital punishment means those without the capital get the punishment. There's a guy crying out, it's not fair. That's the last thing he cared about. Or consider this man who cared most about his image, Thomas Moran was a pickpocket 
known by the nickname Butterfingers. He reportedly stole as many as 50,000 wallets in his career. He died in Miami in 1971, and his last words were, quote, I've never forgiven that smart-alecky reporter who named me Butterfingers. To me, it's not funny. <laughs> to us, it really is. <laughs> but he cared so much about his reputation. That's the last thing he said. That's what he was thinking about. His last thought was, it's uh, Butterfingers. I don't like that nickname. Or consider this one. Um, an award for acting is what was on this person's heart. Donald O'Connor was a singer, dancer, and actor, and he also hosted the Academy Awards in 1954. O'Connor died at the age of 78 with his family gathered around him, and he joked, quote, I'd like to thank the Academy for my Lifetime Achievement Award that I will eventually get. <laughs> he still hasn't gotten one. It's not coming. All right, I told you they're getting a little bit worse. Um, Vladimir Lenin's last words were, good dog. He spoke this to his beloved hunting dog that brought ducks back to him. He was thinking about hunting and his dog. Or Groucho Marx's brother Leonard, who was better known as Chico Marx, gave instructions to his wife as his last words, quote, remember, honey, don't forget what I told you. Put in my coffin a deck of cards, a golf club, and a pretty blonde. <laughs> Gambling, golf, and girls. That's what was on his heart. And here's the last one, and this one, this one is shocking. Actress Joan Crawford yelled at her housekeeper who was praying as Crawford died, and she said, don't you dare ask God to help me. That's a person who is absorbed with herself and still thinks she's in control. That's a, I told you I was going to end with a hard one. Started with a good one. There's a very wide range of people's hearts in there. And the reason that I start with that is because we're going to look at the last words of Jesus. And as these last words reveal the heart of the person that spoke them, so do the words that he spoke reveal the heart of God to us. So we're going to be seeing these seven last words of Christ. And um, there are seven of them, and they're picked up across the four Gospels. Matthew and Mark both share the same one. It's called the cry of dereliction, when Jesus says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Quoting Psalm 22. They both have an account of that. The other six words from the cross are split evenly between John and Luke. And today we're going to look at the first one, as Dan mentioned, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That's what we'll be looking at today. But in this sermon series in Lent, we're going to see the love of God for sinners. We're going to see the pain of being our sin bearer. And we're going to see a cry of victory as he defeated sin and death and Satan and hell. We're going to see all this just in the seven last things that Christ said from the cross. So let's start today with Luke 23. If you want to turn in a pew Bible, we're in Luke 23, verses 26 to 38. And my main point this morning is that Jesus forgives his enemies to transform them into his friends. Jesus forgives his enemies to transform them into his friends. I want you to know how relevant this topic is. I probably don't have to tell you that, but forgiveness is probably in at least one out of every three pastoral conversations that I have with people. When I talk to people, it's either so-and-so did something to me and I'm having a hard time forgiving them, or I really, I blew it, I really messed up, and I don't know how I can forgive myself. I hear those things over and over again in people's lives, so I probably don't have to tell you how important the topic of forgiveness is. How can I forgive so-and-so? How can I forgive myself? Those two questions follow us through life. 
Now, let me begin with the context here. I'm going to tell you that Jesus is the answer, because when in doubt, the answer is Jesus. Okay? That's always the answer. But I think by looking at him more closely, by listening to what he said and what he did, we start to get proper scale. We realize how big the cross actually is for us. And it becomes a huge resource for us in being able to forgive others. We also get proper perspective on ourselves. And when we get the perspective right on the magnitude of our sinfulness, then we're able to have grace for other people who are also sinful, and we're able to have grace for ourselves when we mess up. So let's look at Christ and notice something, first of all, of how he is oriented toward other people. He is, has already suffered a pretty bad flogging. Many people have died from that alone. And then he's expected to carry his crossbeam, the top part of the cross, on his shoulders up to Calvary. He's so exhausted he can't do it, so they conscript Simon of Cyrene to carry it for him. As they're walking, the women, a group of women, are crying out and lamenting, and they're weeping for Jesus. And he actually stops and addresses them and says, women, don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves. If, if this is what they do when the wood is green, what will happen when it's dry? In other words, they have the Messiah Christ with them in that moment, and that's what they're doing. What's going to happen after he's gone? He was looking ahead 40 years to the destruction of Jerusalem. When he says, you guys will say, blessed are those who don't have children, it'll be bad. When a city is, is under siege, it is an ugly thing. And 40 years after he said this, that actually happened. Rome came in, and they destroyed the temple, and it was, a, it was a really bad thing. So he's saying he's concerned for them. He's not just concerned for them, but then he's even concerned for the Romans that are the physical ones who crucified him. He's concerned for the Jews. He's concerned for Pilate. He's concerned for you and I. We see that as we back up and get the lens aperture wide enough, we start to see what Christ was looking at. He was looking at everything except himself. He's not saying, I'm innocent. He's not saying, I'm God. He's not crying down for the angels to defend him. He's going, as the scriptures say, like a lamb before its shears is silent. Christ went willingly to his cross. And as the prophecy that I mentioned before says, I mean, this was the plan. God knew this was how he was going to die, and he willingly went out of love for us. Christ is focused on others, not on himself. We start to see what kind of a heart he has. Now, he practiced what he preached. So if you were to turn back a couple of pages in Luke's gospel, just to chapter 6, when Jesus' public ministry was happening and he was traveling around, he spoke to, to the crowds. And in one of his teachings, he said this. This is um, Luke 6, 27 and 28. But I say to you who hear me, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you and pray for those who abuse you. Well, he taught people to do that, and then he demonstrated it when it happened to him. When his enemies were abusing him, what did he do? He prayed for them. He said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And that prayer was heard, because when you look at the early church, by the time the Holy Spirit falls at Pentecost, there's 120 disciples gathered in a room praying. Well, who were those people? Well, many of them were Jews that had come, come into the church. By Acts chapter 6, there are a number of religious leaders that had converted, people like Nicodemus and others. The people that were saying crucify him were the same ones that later were saying, you're God, I'm sorry, forgive me. And he was glad to and welcomed them in. 
Even one of the Roman soldiers, after Christ dies, looked up at the cross and said, surely this was the Son of God. So his answer, his prayer was answered. He was practicing here what he preached, the forgiveness of others, especially the forgiveness of enemies. He forgave them and he forgave their ignorance. They didn't understand what they were doing. I mean, think about this. They certainly didn't understand that he was God. Nobody believed that he was God. At least, I mean, even the disciples doubted, but none of the Romans, they, did, they just didn't believe that. They also didn't believe he was innocent. Pilate did and said, I washed my hands. But, you know, the, the Roman guards that actually did the crucifixion, he's just another criminal in a line of three, right? And they're usually guilty. So they're, he, they didn't realize what they were doing. They were, they were hanging a, an innocent man. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And certainly no one understood that he was making atonement for sin. He was actually bearing their penalty on that cross, not his own. He was in our place. It was the self-substitution of God. God made him who had no sin to become sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's it's the great exchange. This was happening right there, and they they were complicit in it, and it was for their benefit and for our benefit. And they just didn't know. And they mocked. They mocked him as a king, not realizing he actually was a king coming into his glory in that moment. Now, you know the inscription that Pilate wrote above it said, this is the king of the Jews. And he did it to spite the Jewish leaders. And in John's gospel, they come to him and they say, no, you got it wrong, Pilate. It should say this man said he was the king of the Jews. And Pilate said, what I've written, I've written. And he left it up there. So the guards looked up and see Jesus dying and they see the king of the Jews and they started saying to him things like, hey, king of the Jews, why don't you save yourself? Come down from that cross. If you're the king, what are you doing up there? But you see, he was so regal in even the way that he died that the thieves that started out both mocking him, one of them realized this guy is not normal. And he said, when you come into your kingdom, remember me. We'll look at that next week. But he recognized that this guy was not normal. On this cross, he was a king. And I think it's fascinating, if you, if you know some of the stories of the Gospels, uh, in Mark 10, James and John, the, the so-called sons of um, thunder, sons of Zebedee, uh, they came to him one time and they said, Lord, I love their question or their comment, Lord, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. That's literally what they said. And he said, well, what do you want me to do for you? And they said, when you come into your glory, we want to sit at your side, one on the right and one on the left. And then he said, can you drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism I'm about to undergo? And they said, we can. And he said, you, you will, but to, get, to be given the right and left is not yours. Well, that's because it belonged to two other people. When he came into his glory... The king, the the king of the universe had a crown of thorns. He was on the center cross and on his right and left were two thieves, two criminals. It was the perfect identification with sinful humanity. That was him entering into his glory. And I'm quite certain that James and John were grateful he did not grant their request. That was a terrible moment. But even in that moment, Christ, and by the way, the, the pictures of a corpus on the cross very modestly have some kind of a loincloth. That was never how Romans crucified. He was totally naked. In fact, they cast lots for his undergarment and they, you know, rather than tear it. So he was completely naked, exposed, and bleeding and dying. And even in that moment, he was acting like a king and the savior of the universe. 
He had a crown of thorns, and he's saying, Father, forgive. And he's concerned for other people. He was, he was up there forgiving us and loving us in that moment, and he was coming into his glory. Now, it's not surprising that they mistook him and mocked him because that's not normal kingly behavior. Kings sit in palaces with nice, comfortable clothing. They have huge uh, entourages around them. They have people that announce their presence. In fact, it's interesting when you look at stories or movies that show somebody of either a a royal nature or a a political, powerful person um, being misunderstood when they try and do a common task. Um, there's a number of examples. The one that came to mind as I was thinking about it was the movie The American President. Um, Annette Benning's in it and Michael Douglas. And he's dating her, but he's the president of the United States. And he, he wants to get her flowers. And her aides are like, okay, sure, we'll take care of it. And he goes, no, no, I want to actually do this myself. I want to get her flowers. And so he doesn't even know how to use the phone to call out. They have to help him call out. And then when he's on the phone with some flower shop, he doesn't have a credit card, and they tell him it's been in storage since he was elected. So he doesn't have a credit card. And when he finally calls them and says what he wants, they, he says, do you recognize my voice? I'm the president. And they hang up on him, which is what you and I would do, right? It's such a common task that somebody that's the president would never do that, and so you don't expect to hear from them. And so that's comical when that kind of stuff happens. But here in this, it's very sad. They don't know what they're doing. They're mocking him as the king as he is exhibiting his most kingly features. He is the kind of king that is a suffering servant. And he's majestic in that and he's entering into his glory. Jesus forgives his enemies so that we can become his friends and then he expects us to forgive others. Now here's the hard part. Living into that teaching for ourselves. And our problem is one of scope. First of all, and when you look at the, the magnitude of the solution, it does tell you something about the severity of the problem. Most of us think we're basically good people. I'm a pretty good guy. Yeah, I, every once in a while I make a mistake or I do something wrong. And, I mean, nobody's perfect. We say those kind of things. But then when you look at the severity of what he had to do to be able to forgive us, all of a sudden you start realizing maybe I'm not such a great person. And it humbles you. It has to. It even scandalizes you the first time you really think through what Christ experienced in order to be able to forgive us. And the thing about it is we tend to look at other people and we have a skewed perspective. We think, how could they do that to me? I would never treat somebody that way. And it might be your spouse or a friend or it could be somebody in business that does something. And the truth of the matter is you totally could do that. If you have the scale right, you realize It's only by the grace of God that you haven't done that. You've done a different version of it in a different way. There is nothing that has been done that your heart couldn't do given the right circumstances or the wrong circumstances, if you think about it. And then for ourselves, when we do something wrong, we we beat ourselves up and go, I don't know how I did this. I don't know how I could have let myself get into that situation. How could I have been so fill in the blank? Well, that is because we have too high of an estimation of ourselves. We actually think we're basically pretty good people until our heart betrays us and the truth comes out. It's in that moment that the cross speaks the most to us. It's in that moment that we can be real before God. And it's in that moment that we find how big the cross actually is. See, I want to suggest to you that you can forgive yourself and you can forgive others because of what Christ has done. There is nothing that you could do to somebody else or that they could do to you that is worse than what we 
have done to the Son of God. We will never know how much that cost him. That experience was so horrific. But we do know that it was the greatest price ever paid. And that's how much you're loved. That's how valuable you are. And so if you're having trouble forgiving somebody, start to look to Christ. Start to look at what he's done to forgive you. And I would encourage you to pray for those people. I mean, that's a big part of this. He prayed for his enemies. He modeled something for us. And then he told us in that teaching, I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who abuse you. If you're having trouble forgiving someone, start praying for them every day for a month. It will begin to change your perspective. You start to understand how they might have been able to do the thing they did that hurt you. You start to empathize with them and sympathize. If you're having trouble forgiving yourself, look at the cross and realize how big his death was, how much he had to suffer so that you could be forgiven, and stop telling yourself you're, you, you're that great. Be honest before him and go, okay, Lord, now we're at an honest moment. Will you still forgive me? And his answer is yes. His teaching is pretty straightforward here. His, his example is even more so. We, f- we forgive because he first forgave us. Would you pray with me? Lord, this is really hard for us to forgive. Peter asked if we should do it seven times, and you said there's no limit. We need your help with this, Lord. I pray that you would help us to realize our deep need, but your even deeper love. Lord, heal us through your forgiveness. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.